On this episode, we are joined by Awa Joe, who is a force to be reckoned with. She works at Microsoft in France right now. In DEI, she has had an incredible career with multiple graduate degrees, education policy and social analysis from Columbia, as well as an MBA from Kelly School of Business in Indiana University. And she is able to share with us her perspective and her journey with DEI and how she creates influence, whether it's using data or is it better to use the business case or is it better to make an appeal to the humanity of people. And so she explores all of this with us today, as well as sharing lots of stories, including dynamics between France and her home country of Senegal. So join us today for a powerful episode. Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr., and I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. What's going on, family? This is Humanize, the podcast, the legendary, just the work that we do is such a blessing for us to have this platform to just make sure that um, we are part of the solution and not just speaking about the problem, you know? And so as we are here, I, I always want to start with a disclaimer to let you know that we do the work to make sure that the individuals that we're interviewing, that we're talking with, have given us permission to dive deep into these kind of topics. And right now it's so fitting to be here with a powerful woman in these days where individuals are trying to take away power. And so like, let's get to work and um, hopefully you will be empowered as we've already been empowered with this great, powerful guest. Emily? <laughs> Welcome, Awa. Assalamu alaikum, Nangadef. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. So yeah, you're in France now, right? Where are you? In Paris? I am. So I am in Paris. Uh -huh. um, right now I moved here November 2020. So right in the middle of the oh, COVID wow. pandemic. Oh, yes, wow. I've been here a year and a half. <laughs> wow. yeah. That must have been quite a transition to get to know people. Oh. <laughs> like no it one could go outside. Especially with the city. The city was shut down the first six months of being here, but yeah, my fiance is here, so I wasn't completely oh, okay. Open, so is good. <laughs> That's great. That's great. First of all, I'm so curious to learn today just about your story and your journey and your parents' journey and how you you got to be working at Microsoft, focus on DEI and the different places that you've touched. And then as we the conversation evolves, Courtney and I are just both very curious about DEI in, in France and the current relationship of France and formerly colonized West Africa, mm -hmm. or maybe that's not how you would qualify it. So <laughs> we'll yeah. hear about that soon. 
<laughs> There's definitely a lot to talk about there. Yeah, yeah my name is Awa Joe. I was born in Senegal in a rural area called Kola, which is about three hours east of the capital, Dakar. And my parents immigrated to the U.S. at different times. My dad came first in 1989, the year I was born. And then my mom came a couple of years later. And then I followed suit about two years afterwards. And they settled in Harlem. And so very much consider myself a New Yorker, was raised in Harlem, have the New York accent, have the New York drive, and it's <laughs> in everything that I do. And then in college, I went to a small liberal arts college in Maine. I decided to move out of New York City and find that my way That must have been quite a Maine, thing. <laughs> which was fascinating. Kowlock to Harlem to wow. Maine. To Maine. Wow. wow. And Maine was definitely a culture shock for so many reasons. And one of the biggest one was, you know, going to public school in New York City, very diverse. You see a lot of different people. You grow up with a lot of different people and then you get to Maine and you find yourself being one of only maybe 13 or a handful that look like you in your class. And oftentimes you're the only person of color in all of the classes that you're in. And I think that's just the experience a lot of Black people have when they go to these sorts of elite institutions in especially in states that are mostly not populated by a lot of people of color, even though you do see that shift happening there. And as a result of being there in that culture shock, I actually decided to study Africana studies Mm. and minor in French. Mm. And a part of that was wanting to have a better understanding of the African-American history and culture within the U.S., even though I grew up there, right? But it's not the same as actually fully understanding and diving into the history Mm -hmm. and really getting a good grasp of it. And then having these, what I would consider like very critical conversations about race, about ethnicity, about the history of, you know, Black folks from even before slavery up until now. And just being able to engage in that conversation in a very white institution. Yeah, that's fascinating. Super fascinating. And yeah, so did that, decided to go into education for a couple of years, really focused on diversity and inclusion. So that's where that passion really came from and helped to build out the DI program for a small upper school called the Bay School in Massachusetts, which also in another very white part of the U.S. Mm -hmm. And again, it was It was interesting, though, because if you think about the work that we were doing then in 2011, 2012, and you see where schools are now, in a sense, they were ahead of the game. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, which is really, really cool. But yeah, fast forward, stayed in education, decided to go get a master's in education policy to, again, be able to just see how can I impact and influence those around me, whether it's the government or it's institutions. And as much as I love that work, really realized that a lot of the impact and the things that I was trying to change, it was just very, very hard. And I think that's part of the bureaucracy of working Mm. within the education system in the U.S. Could you give an example of that? Like how, how you're... Yeah. I think one of the things I quickly realized was... so. The focus of my master was really around social analysis and using data to influence the decisions you made around education. And so one of the places that I was working at at one point was with the Department of Education. So thinking about the universal pre-K in New York City. And so you gather all this data, you have all these conversations, but yet 
they're still doing things the same way they've been doing it for 5, 10, 20 years, right? right? And so right. you put all these data in front of them, but it's like none of those numbers matters. None of those anecdotes and those stories matter because at the end of the day, they're still going to do what <laughs> they've been doing all this time. Yeah, yeah. And so you just get frustrated, you get burnt out and you really start to question like, okay, is there another way? How else can I influence? How else can I impact the things that are important to me and you know, people who look like me and who grew up in areas like me. And through conversation, a mentor encouraged me to look at this program called MLT, which is Management Leadership for Tomorrow. Mm. And their focus is getting people of color into top 25 business schools so that they can Mm. influence and impact in a very different way. And so did that program meant amazing, like super talented Black, Hispanic, Native American folks who are really going to be the next leaders in whatever industries they're going to be a part of, which was super, super dope. Decided to go to IU, Indiana University, and did the consortium, which is another organization that's focused on creating more opportunity for Black, Hispanic, Native American folks within business schools. And so did that and found my way to Microsoft. And initially, to be honest, I wasn't looking at tech I wasn't looking at the private sector at all because Mm. in my mind, I was trying to combine the MBA with the master's in ed policy and go either back into like the nonprofit or go into higher ed or something like that, but Mm -hmm. started to explore tech a little bit more. And I'm actually very glad that I decided to go in this route because technology and tech companies have like, they wield so much power and they're able to influence so many different things. And so now being in the position that I'm in and being at a company like Microsoft, there's so many ways that I can influence and that I can continue to drive this conversation around diversity and inclusion, Mm -hmm. whether it's sharing my story or diving into some of the, you know, the topics and things that I studied in my education and just helping them to also rethink how they work Mm -hmm. with people who they've typically left out in the conversation in the past. Right. And so that's kind of just, I guess, my my background. And, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, moved to France a year and a half ago. And France is interesting because it has its own challenges around diversity and inclusion and mm. around race, around religion. And yeah. it's, it's, it's been interesting being here and witnessing it. And then it's also been interesting being here and witnessing what's happening in the U.S. as mm. well. And so a lot of things that I'm processing at the moment, I would say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. What is your approach, right, when you're speaking on DEI with companies, mainly white companies? Because a lot of times individuals want to do DEI, want to be in the conversation, but really don't want to touch on the topics that are uncomfortable, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, like, what? How, how do you approach that? Yeah, one of the ways, or I guess it's kind of breaking down into two things. It's the business impact of having diversity and inclusion conversations and then the human impact as well, right? And while it's easy to talk about the business and, you know, there's a ton of research that talks about how much diversity and inclusion leads to more innovation and ultimately that helps your bottom line, right? At the end of the day, if you're more innovative, especially if you're a tech company, you're going to make more money at the end of the day. And that's what your stakeholders care about. But while that part is extremely important to talk about, there's, again, that human side of it, right? And so you can do as much as you want to 
be more diverse and to bring in more people of color. But if you are not driving inclusive behaviors, if you're not changing your culture, if you're not creating more equal opportunities for folks once they arrive and actually developing them to become those next leaders, the work that you're doing to bring in the folks, it goes to zero, right? Mm -hmm. Which means ultimately you're investing in bringing someone in, you're training them, you're providing them all these skill sets. But if they're not happy and if they don't feel included and if they don't feel like they belong, they're going to take whatever resources you've provided them in terms of growth and opportunity, and they're going to take that somewhere else, Mm -hmm. right? And so that becomes a loss for the company as well. And so usually I try to kind of find that balance when having that conversation. And I think especially now, right? Like, I don't know, like companies can no longer say like, oh, it's it's a difficult conversation to have or we just don't want to, you know, rub people the wrong way, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's 2022. You have to have these conversations. It's like, yes, some people will find it a little bit more challenging and difficult than others. And that's not to take away from their experience when it comes to that. But mm-hmm. you can't use that as an excuse as to not have these conversations. Mm-hmm. I just want to name to like, because. When I do work with companies, I find, because I work a lot with engineers like tech, but also civil engineers, that I have to lead with the business case. And there's a part of me that feels just kind of revolted by like, I need to rationalize why you're going to make money off of treating people with dignity. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And just wondering if you've I don't know, maybe you have a a more evolved understanding of that or like (laughs) you can help me kind of like grapple with that or I don't know what your thoughts on that are. I oftentimes still have a hard time with that because Mm -hmm. in my mind and like the way that I was raised and the way I've seen my parents treat people and I've seen people who I respect and who inspire me the way they treat people. They're not thinking about what am I going to get out of being kind? What am I going to get out of treating you like, you know, like an equal? That's not how they're thinking about their interactions with people. And so I, I like, it is honestly very, very challenging to not think about that. But one thing that I've seen work really well, and there's a leader that I worked with about two years ago, and I was doing some coaching with him, and we were having a conversation about privilege. So white male, CVP, so you know he's up there when it comes to hierarchy, right, at the company. And he just was not grasping what we were talking about when we were talking about privilege. And mm. at that time, I would say he was very much one of those people who, if you were to talk about privilege, he would mention, well, I grew up in a rural part of name any random state in the U.S., right? Or I grew up poor, right? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so I had to, in a sense, have a conversation with him that was more focused on storytelling Mm. and understanding like both one, the impact of the things that he was saying to me as a Black woman Mm. who also grew up poor, who can talk about all of the things that I did not have in my life. But if I sit down and I think about the things that I have now and where I'm at now and the privileges that I hold now, it doesn't matter if like, yes, all of the experiences you have had in the past, like they ultimately build up to who you are and who you become as a person. But that does not mean you don't have privilege in this moment and in this time. Mm -hmm. And that also doesn't mean you didn't hold privilege before as well, especially as a white man. And so the more we focused on really breaking down like the stories he was sharing. And I did a lot of like asking why, <laughs> you know, and trying yeah. like really pushing him to like explain to me, like, 
what do you mean by that? Mm. Like, what is your intent by mentioning and or sharing that you grew up poor? Like, what am, yeah. how am I supposed to feel? Uh-huh. Do you feel like I'm supposed to be more connected to you because you're telling me Interesting. you grew up poor and therefore, because we are connecting about this thing, you're no longer privileged, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. And so uh-huh. I think it's it takes a lot of time. And I mean, it, it took a solid three, four months of having these types of conversations with him before something clicked. But I think what helped was I tried not to force it Mm -hmm. too much Mm -hmm. and like to allow him the space and time to process. And then I would tell him like, you know, like my door is wide open. Like whenever you want to come and ask a question Mm. and or continue this conversation, let's continue it. And there there were moments where I'd be like, okay, I think we need to stop for today because you're going to say something or I'm going to respond in a certain way and it's not going to be productive for either of us. And so I think it's also getting to that point and realizing for the two of you, at what point is this conversation no longer productive? Yeah, that's that's great. You know, did he have like a particular aha that you remember? One thing that we did was we kind of pushed him out of his comfort zone. So he was asked to be a part of a panel about diversity and inclusion. And in that panel, he had to be extremely vulnerable Mm -hmm. about like his own experiences growing up. But then one of the questions we asked within that panel was, what what is something that you've learned about yourself in comparison to maybe other peers or others who grew up around you that really differentiate the things that you have access to now and the things that they don't have access to? Mm -hmm. And so I think once we started talking about access and equality, Mm -hmm. like that's when it started to click a little bit more because he was starting to realize okay, like, yeah, there are a lot of things that I can say I can do and rooms that I can enter Mm. that some of my peers who I may have grown up with, who may have grown up on the farm and who are still there, there are rooms that they still cannot enter. And then even let's take it to now talk about race, right? Like I could be dressed as nice as another white woman, but there's going to be a reaction that's going to be a little bit different depending on the rooms that you're entering. And for him to start to just really distinguish and understand that some of it is conscious, other, you know, other aspects of it is unconscious bias that just steeps into the mind. And he just, he did a phenomenal job in that panel of like really pushing himself. And I think what helped also is the panelists that we had there as well Mm -hmm. and him hearing their stories and really understanding the impact of their lived experiences and how that's influenced the Mm. things that they do now and how they approach different conversations around inclusion. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Something's coming up for me is you, you both were speaking about how revolting or how upsetting it is sometimes to always have to lead from the business aspect when talking about DEI work, you know? In my mind, it's not surprising because slavery, white supremacy led with the business aspect as well. You know, like Mm -hmm. you have to match the intensity to dismantle the system, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and like slaves were not slaves because they were black at first. They were slaves because that's black people could make the most money for white people to build this country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it's always about economics. It's always about that. And you had to dehumanize individuals to allow the economics to make sense back then Mm -hmm. and so like Mm -hmm. we're all humans they knew they were wrong when they were where we're doing certain things to enslave individuals from whole other continents just to build this one you know they they knew that you know but Mm -hmm. like the justification of religion the justification of economics the justification of just everything created the system that we're in so now when we're 
fast forwarding into 2022 and we're doing this new world of DEI work, it has to match what was done back in the day. It, like mm. it, th- there is no other way to do it. And so unfortunately, we have to think about the economics of it, but leaning in more on the humanization of the the to humanize a company is one of the most difficult things. Mm-hmm. And that's the issue because people a lot of times want to feel like they are part of something that's bigger than themselves. So if you make it as if your company is one that humanizes individuals by having diversity, equity, and inclusion, yo, your bottom line is going to skyrocket because now it's like, oh, look, look what good I'm doing because as humans, we're selfish. We want to feel like, oh, I'm doing good. No, you're 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 unraveling the bullshit that has been happening for centuries now. So you're not ahead of a curve. You just have to. It's just a mind type of. It's so weird. Like as I look and as being a social entrepreneur now, and starting to understand that people want to be a part of a story. And when you do DEI work, it's so phenomenal. And like Emery said, like some gut-wrenching to say, this is the bottom line. This is what we have to do. It'd be better for the shareholders instead of leading with, this is just better for humans. People need jobs. Diversity is something that is better for us all around. Let's just get to work that way. It's it just something that came up for me as you both were speaking, because it is it, it, it is a lot to always have to think about the financial aspects of doing a good thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you find it was the same in education? Like you were talking about the data that was in front of people. Yeah. That- education is so makes me so sad sometimes, right. especially when you think about like the public education system mm-hmm. in the U.S. Ooh. And I mean, right, like now I have the privilege to be in another country and to see how the education system is set up here. Mm-hmm. And so like just my entire, I guess, understanding of what a good education system has shifted so much since I've been here and like the people I've met and the, just the the education that they've been afforded. And, Can you describe that a bit? And while it's not, yeah, like, even though like in the U.S., yes, public schools are free, but it is especially, let me, I'm going to use New York as an example. And like, if I think about the, the pre-K work that we were doing and there's so much research that talks about how important early childhood is and how that really does determine and impact the trajectory that a child will go in in terms of their education later on in life. And yet, if you look at the public schools in, say, the Bronx, like certain parts of the Bronx, or even like in certain parts of Harlem, and then you look at the public schools in the Upper East Side or in the Upper West Side, right? Public schools, they're both public school, publicly funded, but dramatically different in terms of the resourcing, dramatically different in terms of the the opportunities that the students within those schools are provided. Mm-hmm. And so that continues mm. <laughs> this division that and this gap that you see and have seen for a very long time within just like the difference between the opportunities that someone from a low-income neighborhood gets versus someone from a more advantaged neighborhood and the opportunities that they're afforded. And so even if I think about like, so my brother, he went to Beacon High School in New York, which is public high school, but very well funded mm. public high school. And so, you know, 
he had more opportunities to after school programs. He had more opportunities for like sports that he played. He had more opportunities for internships that he would do as a high school student. And the list can go on and on and on. And then I went to, um, and I, I turned out fine, but I went to a different public high school that even though it was supposed to be a quote unquote specialized, like science research high school, as the student, I had to do all the work to find the internships that I would do for the summer. Wow. I had to put in extra effort, <laughs> right. right, to get access and opportunities to things. Whereas for my brother, it was more easily available because the school had the resources to provide mm -hmm. them with the information to the different programs. And they had these connections with these different programs. Mm -hmm. And a large part of it is because of the location. Right. You know, it's it was a, the location of that high school mm -hmm. and the types of students who went to that high school who came from mostly wealthy families. But while they were still attending a public high school in New York, because they came from more wealthy backgrounds, they were given more opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so you just see such a huge inequality within that in itself. And it's super, super sad. And that's not to say like France doesn't have it, but in France, like if you look at how the high schools are set up, elementary, et cetera, et cetera, you have more teachers to students ratio. Mm -hmm. So you have a better ratio in terms of students to teachers. They have more access to after-school programming and social programming. And a part of that also is just French society in general. And in terms of what your tax dollars do in France. They just don't do that in the U.S. And so there's just more social goods that are given to folks regardless of what income bracket they fall under. Mm -hmm. And so that in itself provides more access and more opportunity regardless of if you happen to live in a poorer neighborhood or not. Mm. Those things just are dramatically, dramatically different. And then they do a lot of, it's called formation. And so if they do a lot of just like skill building and training, and it's all paid by the government. Mm -hmm. For instance, I had a friend recently that left their job and, you know, they get unemployment, but they also get access to all of these resources provided by the government that provides free trainings, mm -hmm. whether they want to get a certificate to be a PM, you know, a project manager, or they want to learn how to use the cloud mm -hmm. and they're not having to pay for it. The government is like, oh, okay, you don't have a job right now. Here's your unemployment. But also, Let's get you ready. here's all of the different resources that we have. Uh -huh. So if you want to switch industries, you want to switch functions, go to school, we're going to pay for it. And then you're, we're also going to have these programs that are connected to these companies so that you can find a job. Uh -huh. And so just more is done to actually move people along versus holding them back, I would say. And again, France has a lot of issues. And so when we talk about like the race piece, I can get into that. But there are some things that I would say they are doing well in terms mm -hmm. of opportunity and in terms of access. Mm -hmm. You know, these systems that have been put in place, we speak on a lot on this podcast. And when we talk about education, I see now that it is life-saving. It's almost as important as healthcare, you know? And because if a person doesn't have type of education or the access that you spoke of, you know what's going to happen. Again, you're a slave. You're a slave to whatever is in front of you because you can't make decisions that's going to better your life or your family's life. And so as you, you speak on education, again, brilliantly, it just brought up for me how unless we address education for future generations, 
there's going to always be inequities that are going to be insurmountable. It's always you're, you're speaking to a man that understand, like there was a point in my life where I didn't give a damn about education to look now that understand that education literally saved my life, you know, to have the, the fortune to be able to pick up a book and see past my community is a powerful thing. You look outside and you see vials and, and, and addicts and, and individuals wrapped steeped in, in certain activities that they have to do because they don't have a lot of the choices that other individual society have. And then you pick a book up and you see there is life past these walls, you know? And so it is such a powerful thing to be educated. And because there's a difference between being educated and going to school. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's a huge yeah. difference, though. Yeah. I love the fact of how you you bridged education and increased access to because poverty is always a lack of access to insert whatever you want there, whether uh, access mm-hmm. to food, access to housing, access to healthcare, access to education. And so as we address poverty, if we address equity, like education is one of those things that has to be at the top of what we're trying to address because without education, well, without all of the systems that are have been placed, we, we're not going to mm-hmm. live a life worth living. Yeah. yeah. It just brought that up for me. That's so true. And it, it actually made me think, right? Like, you know, if we think about, I'll, I'll use my family as an example, like my parents chose to leave their homeland to come to the U.S., with the number one focus being to educate their children yeah. and to make sure that their children were educated so that we could make good decisions for mm-hmm. ourselves so that we can have access to things and so that we can then give back and pay it forward however we can. And so I, I think about that often. It's like they didn't come to the U.S. to build wealth, right? Like that's going to happen mm-hmm. as a result. Mm-hmm. Like their intent was, okay, how do we provide our children with something that it's going to eventually lead them to live a life that is very different from our family members who are back home in Senegal who don't have a stable education system. Like Senegal is a mess right now yeah. in terms of the education system. And so it's like, how do we make sure they're afforded a certain opportunity that will then hopefully impact the trajectory of their lives? Mm. And like, I feel lucky in that, like, I didn't feel that pressure from my parents to like, have to do well in school, it was more internalized because of me realizing what I had in front of me versus what my cousins didn't have right. in front of them. Right. right. And so it's, just, it's, it's powerful. It's a powerful tool. Mm-hmm. Mm. So powerful. I'm just, I don't even know if it's worth sharing all my reflections. I'm just thinking about my own privilege when it, when it comes to education. So I was raised in Massachusetts and went to Park, which is, you know, nearby Faye. Then I went to Middlesex and then I went to Brown and I always was taught like, this is just what you do. You just go to the best institutions you can. Like that, that is what you do. Like there wasn't any real critical thinking beyond that. And I'm reminded of when I was in Dharmasala, India, talking to some Tibetan refugees there and visiting the schools there where it's mostly boarding schools because so often families will come over the Himalaya to India to drop off their kids so that the kids can get a Tibetan education. And the parents will go back, leave the kids. And I was like, I I just had like this crazy sense of like, I didn't know. I didn't know what education really could do. And it was like, it's such a blind spot. And just to know that these families were willing to 
cross the Himalaya, drop off their kids, and then go back for education really changed my view. And when I, I think of, I don't know what a different education would have gotten me in terms of intellectual knowledge, but it, it has, I have access because I, I have access to these really strong networks of alumni and I have social access just saying that I went to an Ivy League school. It's comical, like what that had like gained me access to. Like I remember coming right out of high school and my friends and I were all in the vineyard and we were applying for like random jobs, you know, and I was applying for a job at Safeway to, to work that summer. And my friend was too. And we were like exactly the same qualifications, but I said, I'm going to Brown. They hired me. <laughs> so it's... And that's for a supermarket, right? And and like Safeway, the supermarket? Yes, yes, yes. Was, so... Supermarket, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I don't know how much of a difference this is going to make, but I guess I'm just trying to think of like the mind mindset of like, you can go anywhere and you can do anything that was instilled in me, the open doors that was instilled in me. And if you need help, mm -hmm. you have these people who work at Google right next door. You have these people who work at, you know, University of Chicago right here. And it's just something that I don't often like just sit down and, and focus on is how many doors have been open from the beginning, you know, whether I walk through them or not. That's a different story, but but you have the option. But I have the option, right? and you have the option yeah. to choose if you're going to walk through them or not. Exactly. And I think about that, mm -hmm. like even it's crazy. It's called freedom. That's what I y'all 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 are. That that's all that is. Freedom mm -hmm. makes yeah. it so that you don't have to distract yourself thinking about things that should be normal. When you're truly free, you don't got to mm -hmm. think about, oh, I need to go to the doctor. Can I afford this medication? When you're free, you don't got to ask about what school you can go to. You go to any school. Yeah. It's more like I get to sit back and be like, which door do I go That's through it. instead of, is there even a door here? No. And then how do I get into the door? Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, let's, I want to make sure that we, I'm, I'm curious to hear about, tell me about France. <laughs> tell me about, yeah. you said that there, there isn't a word for race in France? So, I mean, there's like, <laughs> France looks so weird, <laughs> but I like love it also. But I'm about to like, move there so... after that description of <laughs> how I mean, tax dollars are used. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as even the, the thing is like, I'll get taxed, like I'll get my pay stub at the end of the month and I'll kind of like complain about how much I'm being taxed. Mm. But then I step back and I see where my money's going and I'm like, okay, like I'm actually okay with mm. that versus like when I was in the US, I'm like, why the hell am I being taxed? <laughs> where is this much going? Like where's this, this money, money is going, going you know? to military? Absolutely nowhere. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Like for things that I am like just can't make sense of. Mm -hmm. But it's been interesting moving to France for a couple of reasons. I mean, when I first told my I'll give you this story, like when I first told my mom that I had decided to move with the company to Paris, mm -hmm. she had a very negative reaction a to me wanting to move to Paris. That's complex. Yeah. And I think, and I, and I understand, like at first I didn't really get uh -huh. it, right? Because I'm like, what's the big deal about moving to France? But then I think about, right? Like my parents were born in the 1960s, right? Like right when Senegal got independence from France. And so they really experienced what a post- colonial Senegal looked like and how that impacted their childhood and the things that talk about access again that they had access to and like the instability that they kind of lived through during that time mm. right so there's like that piece but then also like 
my mom's understanding of France is still very much of what France looked like in the 1990s when a lot of her friends were immigrating to France and like the experiences that they had Mm. as Senegalese and as Black people moving to France. Mm. And I will say like, while things have gotten better, they're still the same. In some cases, when you think about how there's a huge divide between the type of just experiences that a Black French person has versus a non-Black French person. Mm -hmm. And then my experience has been even more unique because when I speak French, I have a very American accent. Oh, okay. And so people instantly treat me nicer. Oh, interesting. Because I have an English accent. And at that point, they no longer ask me oh, like, where are you originally from? Like, are you Senegalese? They're like, oh, the American girl. Mm. Versus if I had a very French accent as if I grew up in Senegal and was raised in Senegal and then moved here, it would be very different Mm. in terms of how they would treat me because they have a certain perception of Africans and of Caribbean folks who live in France and who lived in France for generations in some cases. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, it's so for me, I've been kind of struggling a little bit with, with that piece because I'm granted a privilege because I grew up in the U S and a privilege that I don't even get in the U (laughs) S I'm granted here. Interesting. And then I see like my, my fiance, he, you know, was born in Senegal, grew up there and then moved to France for college and has been here for like over a decade now. But then I see some of the experiences he's had like at his workplace and like with some of his colleagues and some of the, what we would call racism in the U.S. and like discrimination. And in France, they don't want to call it racism because race is an American thing. Oh, really? And it's not, it's not a French thing. And Ah. so I'm like, what do you call it then? Like you're, you're not treating people equally. Uh, if you don't want to call it race, whatever, but you're not giving people equal opportunity, you're not treating people equally, you're showing preference huh. to one type of person over another. So you can call it whatever you choose. It's racism. Uh-huh. And so he shares some of his stories of like experiences that he's had in the workplace and what that has looked like, especially when he's worked at very French companies mm-hmm. versus where like where he's at now, which is a global company. His experience is very different. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Because it's not a it's not a traditional French company. It's a global company. Mm. So they treat people, regardless of where you're from, equally. Mm. Wow. And so it's just it's been interesting kind of navigating that and seeing that. But then also, like, I work in tech and, um, you know, I, I work at Microsoft and I instantly see how people treat me when I say, oh, I work at Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And like instantly, you know, they're at your service mm-hmm. and they want to help you and they want to do, da, 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 you know, they want to make sure that, that you feel okay, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to spending money. <laughs> but then like, if I was to just walk in, not say anything, and if I let my fiance speak, you know, for the two of us, I see the difference mm-hmm. in how they act, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's bizarre. It's very, very bizarre. What's your interpretation of the story that's different about Africans versus uh, an African who lived in the U.S.? I don't even know how yeah. to like map all those differences. Like, what's your interpretation? I think it's it's kind of similar to like the immigration story in the U.S. If you want to think about it that way, but it's also a little bizarre because 
like if you see how and I'll, I'll use like like more like North Africans mm-hmm. and how they're because they're treated the same way as like Black Africans as well. Mm. And for them, it's even far more bizarre because there was a point in time in French history, like in the early 1960s was when it really started where they were the French were literally begging North Africans to come to France to take on these jobs that no one else was taking. But now <laughs> they're taking over France or no longer French, like <laughs> this whole just insane direction of like just wanting to be more pure and what France looks like, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, you brought these people here. You asked them to come. Uh-huh. And now you're trying to tell them to leave. And no, like they've been here for three, four generations now. They're mm-hmm. not going anywhere. Half of them don't even speak their native tongues anymore. Mm-hmm. They don't go to their quote unquote homelands. Mm-hmm. Maybe they go like every five to six years, but that's not what they, that's not home. Mm-hmm. France is home for them now. Mm-hmm. And they refuse to like hold on to that. And so that's been like interesting to see. But I think from like with my experience, it's, I don't know, I think it's again, it's it's the immigration aspect of it, but it's also they have this notion of, or this idea of like Africans are inferior still. Like, I think that's still very much a part of French culture. If you think, I mean, they colonized most of West Africa. They went in thinking or wanting to, you know, make us more civilized and Mm. to do all of these Mm. things to help us, quote unquote, help us, you know, be better. (laughs) Even though we had our own structures, we had our own (laughs) very strong education systems. We had our own everything before they came in there. But there's still a huge notion that Africans are inferior to the French. Hmm. And it goes back to like, even just think about white supremacy. Like they don't want to call it that, but that's what it comes back to. And there is a very similar, actually white supremacist party notion that lives in France. That's very, very similar to what it looks like in the U S and it's the same thing of like, they claim it's more is being nationalistic and like patriotic, but it's like, no, you're, you're a white supremacist. Like that's what you are Mm -hmm. because in your mind, you think you're superior in your mind. You think the white race is superior and that, you know, no one else can do any good. Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so it's just, it's weird. Yeah. This is crazy. Like this is why we say all the time, white supremacy is less about the color of your skin and more about this perception that you're better than, because just by the fact that you're an American, you're in France, you're respected more for being an American than not disrespected because of the color of your skin as much. You know what I mean? Like that, because we have mm-hmm. this perception that once mm-hmm. you look black, you're in America, like you're less than. But if my black ass went to Paris and I'm speaking English, now I'm given power that I don't even get in my own country. Yo, that's, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. That, that's, that's wow. I, that really mm. struck me when you said that. That's because that's how powerful and absurd white supremacy is. Yeah. Just the notion that I'm better than you because of where I come from. Mm-hmm. Not even what mm-hmm. I can do, not even if I'm better than you actually at something. I don't have to be. As long as I represent power, I'm better than you, period. Yeah. Damn. Sure. Yeah, it's just like the human human supremacy of like, where do you fit in? Like, where does everyone fit in? Yeah. 
and then you belong there, and yeah. then I'm comfortable because yeah. I know where you belong in the supremacy system. And wow, yeah, that's that's wild. It's why I, it's I I'm kind of just struck too with like race as an American thing. I mean, because of the history of of slavery being mm-hmm. tied mm-hmm. to most, you know, like England and yeah. <laughs> and France and Spain and so. Do they not have a word for for racism, or are they just talking about discrimination? Like, how do they? How do you talk about yeah. DEI? How do they identify? Yeah, it? yeah. I think they focus it more on on um, discrimination mm-hmm. than anything. It's like you know, you shouldn't discriminate against people. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to being a bit more clear and direct <laughs> about what's really going on, they ref- they refuse to go there. And so even if you like the French government itself, if you look at any of their documentations Mm -hmm. or even whenever, if something happens, for instance, and even if it's a race related incident, they won't bring up racism. They won't bring up race. They'll just say they'll they'll find they'll find some (laughs) other way to talk about it, but not focus in on the, the root cause or the root of what is actually happening there. So are conversations not because I just gave this keynote, you know, that that touched upon social location. And so you're looking mm-hmm. at, you know, homophobia and racism and ableism and ageism. Are they not talking about those identity-based forms of discrimination or is it all just discrimination? They, they do. So, and that's the thing, they they will call those things out. Okay. So they will call out ageism or like gener- generational differences. Uh-huh. They'll call those things out. They'll call out things about the LGBTQ, uh-huh. A plus community, mm. literally name any other topic. They'll they'll call out religion. Uh-huh. Again, yeah, name any other topic. They will call it as it is. But when it comes to race and especially like anti-Blackness, uh-huh. they will not. <laughs> they run. Interesting. See, the U.S. is audacious, you know, and that's why we are who we are. And so race is an American construct, but yeah. hate is global. <laughs> like, I don't, I, I don't like they went like the French and the, the Italian and Spanish and, and, and English went all over the world mm-hmm. trying to get everything, mm-hmm. trying to get everything. So like that's a global phenomenon. And so it's just amazing to know that other places in the world, race is such an ugly thing that they don't even want to mm-hmm. talk about it. So that goes to show like why in America is are we acting like. Oh, it's not that. It's not. We're over that. We're post-racial. Yo, bro. bro. <laughs> it, it's just every, all of the every, yo, man, you have, well, you gave me a lot to think about today. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, it's insane. I mean, and it, it, to think about it, right? Like even with the U.S., what, like <laughs> two years ago, really, we started talking more right. about race, like post-George Floyd. Before that, people kind of talked about it. Not really. Companies were definitely not talking about it. Not explicitly. It. Not in not in not explicitly. Not in the way that we are now. Thank you, COVID. And so, it's <laughs> exactly. Right. And then, like, and so with France, like, like the way I I see it and the way I think about it is, the longer they try to fight having this conversation and talking about it, it's it's a detriment. Gonna draw it out to the country. It's period. Yeah. Especially because if, if you, similar to, I think, most countries right now, they are becoming more diverse because globalization, mm-hmm. like people are moving, mm-hmm. companies are everywhere, they're moving people around, and they're investing in people in different ways. And therefore, like, 
it's it's just one of those things where it's like does something really horrible need to happen for you to start to have this conversation and it, that's what it feels like mm-hmm. oh. all over again mm-hmm. it's like something oh. dramatic mm-hmm. needs to happen for you to decide okay this is an issue we need to look at our policies we need to look at how we've been talking about it in the past we need to look at our relationships with the countries that we colonized mm-hmm. and in a sense are still colonizing but don't want to call it colonization mm-hmm. even though like again france is so interesting because this is going to be a different time but like france literally has no resources mm. it has no resources france reserve is dependent on the countries that they've colonized that's crazy so like senegal for instance still has the cefa which is kind of like the franc and so our money acts as a reserve mm. for france oh uh. wow and there are, are a lot of west pre cop and pre colonized colonies that are like that mm. right i mean i don't know if you saw the new york times article about france and um haiti Mm-mm. Mm-mm. i would recommend reading it because if you think about like the haitians were the first ones to get freedom mm-hmm. from the french but look at haiti right look how much haiti has lost <laughs> because of the french and has and continues to lose because of the french and so there's just just their their history with their colonized like the countries that they've colonized and then the way they choose to ignore the conversations now mm. it's it's really sad mm. it's really quite 100%. sad 100% i you said something that's really deep it's like something tragic has always got to happen before people open their eyes you know mm-hmm. and we talk about medicine a lot of times especially with people of color we ain't going to the doctor unless oh i can't feel mm-hmm. my foot which is a little sad but yeah and or like look at george floyd black men have been dying Mm -hmm. way before george floyd right Mm -hmm. but when the country stopped on his axis and had to view the horrendous nature that his life was taken from him now we forgot about a freddie gray you know like we forgot about Mm -hmm. all the other Mm -hmm. individuals that lost their lives and so like Mm -hmm. what has to happen for individuals to wake up and it seems really unfortunate that all the bad shit that happens has to happen to people of color. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like right. that right there alone is eye opening because if something happened mm-hmm. to a white person, oh, it's a national, it's a national emergency. Let's talk about, well, look, let's talk about mm-hmm. Ukraine. But, but Courtney, bad things are happening. The white policemen are, are actually going to jail. That's the tragedy that's happening now. They're actually getting held accountable. So now we're gonna yeah. now we're gonna see now, now we, you know, we, real okay. focus. Cool. <laughs> cool. 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 That's crazy. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, white man. Thank you, white man, for putting two, three guys in jail. Just true. Now we're equal. Yeah. Now we're equal. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. That's crazy. Oh my god. Yeah, this um so I feel like today we've we've spoken a lot about influence, which I think is so important. And, you know, France's influence on Senegal and the different influences you have had on companies and organizations and, how, you know, how to influence. And I'm wondering if you might, like, leave our listeners with just some thoughts, you know, if they're working on an organization that's at that, like, 
let's form a DEI committee, but we don't really know what to do, but we're probably just going to keep doing things the way that we've done. Like what tips and advice and encouragement would you give them based on your experience and like how, how to influence, like actually spark change, perhaps without a complete tragedy or disaster? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, it's, it's actually something that, cause you know, I feel like we've been able to figure out how to have this conversation in the U.S., but there's still so much work that needs to happen mm. with how we talk about race and diversity and inclusion outside of the U.S. And so we actually recently worked on a, a global race and ethnicity toolkit, if you want to call it that, to help um, our like in-country like leaders and employees start these conversations with the knowledge that they may not always use race and ethnicity as the kind of titles Mm. for these topics. Mm -hmm. And the way we broke it down is, you know, the the first piece of it is really around awareness of your of your country, of your company, of your whatever environment you're in, and having like a really strong understanding of who are the people that you're working for, working with, and or supporting. Because it starts with that to be able to really understand what are their needs. Because I think what happens a lot with diversity and inclusion, it's, and this happens all the time, it's so easy to go in thinking you have the solution mm. before you even understand mm. what the needs of that community is. I mean, we, we see it happen everywhere, yes. right? And so it's doing that research and really, and as much as we all want to jump to solutions and doing and acting, it's like, I always tell folks, like, you you can't start with that and you can't just put into practice something you've seen another company do or something you've seen another organization do thinking that it's going to work for your organization and, and, or in your environment. And so you really do have to spend that time understanding and understanding without criticism. Also understanding without inputting your own biases (laughs) and and, you know, saying, Oh, like it can't be that bad. And, or just not listening, right. And not hearing what people are sharing. So doing that first, I think, is the most important step because when you're doing that part, people will tell you what they need. Mm, Mm -hmm. They will clearly define what they need, what's missing, where are the gaps. And if you're listening carefully enough, it actually is quite easy to then go into bringing solutions to the table. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is the most important piece and just... I think also like the historical knowledge as well, because if I think about like one of the things I did early on when I was doing, especially supporting our legal team in the U.S. was I had to have a really good historical understanding of what diversity and inclusion meant for that team and what had it looked like in the last 15, 20 years and who was doing what, why, when, where. And then from there, having the conversations with folks, because then you start to see why things are still the way they are Mm. and what hasn't changed. And you also start to see who, and I use who intentionally, but who's who's the problem? (laughs) Because sometimes you need, there are people in that equation that need to exit. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so that means taking that step to make sure those people are removed from the equation, because if they're still there, Progress won't happen. You're not going to move things forward. And yeah. it's going to be really hard wow. to move things forward. And it's unfortunate, but usually, for the most part, in most companies, they're older white men. In leadership. In um, <laughs> leadership who are very comfortable with doing things the way that they've always done it, without caring on the you know about how it impacts and or hurts people because they're performing. Mm. 
you know, mm-hmm. and there's the stakeholders are happy. Mm. Bottom line. And so therefore they're getting their rewards. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Comes back to economics. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. well, thank you so much for joining us today. I so appreciate it. Wonderful. It was lovely to speak with you. We're getting a big thumbs up from Courtney. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm in awe. Thank yeah. you. This was amazing. Thank you for the space oh, to yeah. like, like, you guys are doing such a dope thing. And oh, thank you. this is amazing. Oh. You know, like I, I love that there's more of these types of conversations happening. And I love that the core of it is the human, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. It's like, that's the core yeah. of it. It is. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you both. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.